You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. For almost four decades, the world has lived with falling interest rates and falling inflation as bonds and equities have soared to previously unimaginable highs. Entire careers have begun and ended during what will be looked back on as the halcyon days of global finance. But in recent months, as the Federal Reserve has very gently moved from QE to QT, the drums sounding a possible end to that rosy market environment have begun to beat louder. With the 10-year Treasury dancing either side of the supposedly all-important 3% level, many feel a decisive move is in the offing, potentially bringing with it some unexpected consequences. This week, on Adventures in Finance, where next for the bond market? Today is the 26th of April 2018 and welcome everybody to episode 64 of Adventures in Finance. Now in New York is Alex. Come in Alex. Hey Grant, how are you? I am extremely well. Uh, I'm in Singapore on a god awful time zone to you. Um, but um, but we make the best of it as we always do. Mm-hmm. And also joining us this week, listeners will perhaps notice a difference in the audio quality because uh, <laughs> producer James is no- with us this week. We have uh, in his shoes the very capable Bradley. Bradley, are you there? Yes. Hello. That, that did, did James leave you instructions to not make him look bad? Oh, uh, yeah. I'm trying really hard not to ruin everything over here. <laughs> well, listen. Don't, don't try. Don't try too hard because I think James is hoping uh, that you screw it up ever so slightly. So you know, if you can throw something in there that makes him feel good, uh, that doesn't disadvantage the listeners, that would be awesome. <laughs> All right, I'll try. All right, now we have a lot to get to this week, um, but before we get to our long short segment, it is shameless plug time. Uh, and at Real Vision, we don't do many shameless plugs, but when we do, we like to do them a little differently. Uh, and this week, because of that time difference I already told you about, um, our glorious leader, the CEO, Raoul Pahl, uh, decided he wanted to come on and talk to you about some big changes at Real Vision. And on the basis that he and Alex were both sitting in the same space in New York, it made far more sense for the two of them to chat about it than either get him to do uh, at this time of day or me to do it at three o'clock in the morning. So, Alex, uh, you and Raoul chatting about uh, the big changes to come in Real Vision. Yeah, we sat down earlier today. Take a listen. Okay, so I'm here with Ralph Paul, the co-founder and the CEO of Real Vision. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. Um, 
thanks for having me here. <laughs> well, I'm thanking you for anyway. Um, so we, we, you're here with an exciting announcement about Real Vision. Yeah, we're launching or relaunching Real Vision as a TV channel, an on-demand TV channel, kind of like the Netflix of finance. On that, we have all of the existing program that people love from Real Vision, which is the in-depth interviews with the world's most famous hedge fund managers, the best analysts, strategists, all that kind of good stuff, documentary series, but then we're doubling the content by adding short-form content as well, and mid-length content, so five-minute content, 15-minute content, about a whole number of different things, whether it's trade ideas, or whether it's market trade psychology, and how to be a better investor, educational pieces, and a whole number of things. So what we're doing is creating a value proposition that's not been seen before in, in the financial media. We're creating the TV channel for the modern age. Yeah, and the way you explained it to me was, this, was, this is the way of achieving that vision you had when you started Real Vision uh, back in 2014. Yeah, what we always wanted to do was democratize financial information. We didn't think the quality of financial information in the existing television space was of high enough quality that allowed people to make good investments. So to, to democratize that, that meant bringing the best people in the world to the most number of people, the best information in the world to the highest number of people. So to do that, the best way of doing it is first allow everybody to access it. That's on your Apple TV, Roku, Amazon, Chromecast, it's on your mobile app, it's on transcript form, it's on audio form, it's on our website. But more importantly, it's the price. The price to us was something that we really wanted to bring it to a price that was affordable for a student or a retiree. We wanted to bring that information to as many people as possible. So we dropped the price from $600 a year to $180. Hmm. And the reason we're telling you about it as Adventures in Finance listeners is you will, first of all, all the interviews that you enjoy on Adventures in Finance, you'll find 30 and 60 minute interviews with many of the same guests on Real Vision and with hedge fund managers and you'll find documentaries. Um, and what, what we've recently added to the platform is a trade idea every single day. So every day you log in, there's a top trader sitting down with um, a professional interviewer and they're having a nice 10 minute casual discussion where they're presenting to you their best trade idea. So it, it's pretty much, I gotta say, it's kind of everything you could want in a financial channel. You get the deep 30, 60 minute interviews and you also, okay, you know, how, how can I make money right now? And not only that, we think there's a new way of making money that is becoming a big secular shift to the world. And that is about starting your own business. Mm. And the startup and entrepreneurship space is really interesting because people now realize there's an opportunity to create wealth from starting your own business. I mean, we're talking in a WeWork space where we're surrounded by like-minded people who are all desperately trying to start their own businesses to create their future wealth. We think that's really important. That's part of the finance space and it's the new space of business that nobody's really addressing. And we think if we combine that with finance, we're really addressing everybody's needs in not only how to create wealth, how to protect wealth, and how to grow wealth, and really it's all about learning from the smartest people in the world doing these things. And that's really our mission, and if we can deliver that to as many people as possible, we're doing what we set out to achieve. And, and I just, you know, don't want to, I want people not to have missed the headline, which is that the cost has gone from $600 a year to $180 a year, and we're basically doubling the amount of content you get. So just, just uh, you might have lost that in, in the kind of works here, but that's an important point yeah. too. I mean, basically, it's what you pay for Netflix. 
And for that, right. you get the Netflix of finance. You get an immense amount of content that will help you really understand the financial world that we live in. Very good. Thanks, Rob. Alex, before you throw me out the door, there's just one thing I need to say is just sign up for the free trial. I think urge people to do that. Realvision.com. Um, and then have a look through the content, binge on it, enjoy all the stuff that's there. And then if you like it, $180 is very little for what you get. It's a really incredible value pro proposition and it's definitely well worth checking out. This is, great. It's almost like, this is almost like a real app. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds professional. Yeah, very good. All right, thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Alex. All right, well, look, as shameless plugs go, um, it was definitely shameless. It was definitely a plug. But you know, it wasn't. It wasn't that bad. I've I've, I've heard far more shameless plugs on other uh, stations, and it is again to to reiterate what Ralph said. Um, uh, w what you'll find if you try the free trial on Real Vision is uh, a, just a wealth of information. And, and as Ralph said, binge on it. And if you decide it's not for you, you'll have uh, absorbed a hell of a lot of high quality information. And if you do think that there's value in there, which we certainly do. Uh, it's a very simple job to sign up, and um, we're very confident that you'll enjoy the full product, having listened to the podcast. Anyway, enough shameless plugging. We have a lot to get to today, and we begin, as always, with our long short segment. And um, Alex, you know the drill. I'm going to let you go first, as I always do, because I'm just that kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I am here in a WeWork, as uh, Ral and I talked about, um, which is the, the basis of my long, which is bond market reporters, because the bond market is getting a lot more interesting. WeWork... Uh, the company is raising $500 million yes, in, in junk bonds. Um, they're, I don't think they're selling it that way, but but that that's how they're classified. And we've seen Uber tap the debt markets. And it's just it's just interesting. A lot of these companies that are the sexiest, most um, probably most volatile in terms of they'll either take over the world or they'll kind of go kaput. A lot of these companies are not in the, in the equity markets, but they are in the bond markets. So it's, it's kind of a good time to be a uh, bond reporter. Well, it's interesting, yeah. Your your long being WeWork was was on the very short list of shorts for me this week. Having <laughs> looked at the terms of that particular bond issue, which are just, I mean, astounding. I mean, and, and there was a fantastic piece on this. If you look at um, Jim Grant's Almost Daily, uh, you'll see Jim pull apart the WeWork uh, business model and bond offering as only Jim can. I, and I, the only reason I chose not to have it as my short was because I could never do it this kind of justice Jim can. So I would urge everybody to go to, to, to grantspub.com and, and check out the almost daily grants where he takes a little uh, look at WeWork. I mean, you're right, Alex, the bond market is becoming interesting, which is a perfect segue into this week's uh, guest who's coming up shortly. But um, yeah, I yeah, like I said, I, I can't bring myself to be long of these these darlings because I think that the time for darlings is done. The time for darlings is in falling interest rate environments and and stimulus, and we're now in a tightening environment. And I think that is when the darlings discover that uh, it's just as easy to fall out of love as it is in, and I, and I, I do fear for them. Well, it's also interesting to be. Uh, exposed only to the downside of some of these companies rather than rather than to the upside by having bonds rather than the stock. Well, look, the only, I guess the only advantage of, of WeWork in terms of any pain that might be meted out is that the founders, even though they're on a Series G, I think, uh, the founders still own about 46% of the company, which is extraordinary. So, um, you know, the pain is going to be felt close to home if there is any. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, they, uh, maybe they stick the landing. We'll see. But, look, my, my long this week is, is a very odd combination. Uh, I am long of uh, the Bank of England and Billy Bragg. Now, hey. for those of you who didn't grow up in England in the 1980s, uh, Billy Bragg is a singer-songwriter. Uh, he's a very um, 
active politically. Um, he is left-leaning. He's very erudite. And he's also the writer of one of my favourite songs. There's a song he wrote called Tank Park Salute. And any of you out there who haven't heard it, uh, if you are a father or a son and you can listen to that song without a tear in your eye, I will be amazed. It still brings tears to my eyes every time I hear it, and I've heard it thousands of times. Tank Park Salute by Billy Bragg. But let's off topic. What I uh, am long of is the Bank of England this week invited uh, Billy Bragg to come in and um, do a presentation and have a Q&A session afterwards. Now, he's been a vocal critic of QE. Um, he's, he's marched about it. He's protested about it. And as he said, <laughs> the last time he was at the Bank of England, he was kettled. Now, being kettled sounds like a euphemism for uh, having too much to drink, but it's not. It's actually a method of restraining protesters within a, within a, within a, a very tight cause so they can't really move. But this time, he's going to be escorted inside the door and asked to speak to the higher-ups at the Bank of England and explain his thoughts on um, on QE and, and what the Bank of England may or may not have got right or wrong, which is which is fascinating. I mean, he's uh, as I said, he's been very very vocal about this. In his own words, the, the the money from QE didn't get into the real economy, quote unquote. It's still sloshing around in the financial sector, and that money was put forward to help corporates feel secure after the financial crash in two thousand eight. Um, look, he's got a point. I mean, he he has a point. He 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 did say that. Uh, he would cover a lot of subjects. And in fact, he covered uh, subjects ranging from Donald Trump to the fall of communism to the beheading of Charles I. Uh, it's a fascinating speech. You can find it on YouTube. If you if you Google it, you will find it. But, uh, but kudos to the Bank of England for uh, inviting Billy Bragg to come speak to them. Kudos to him um, for, for being such a, a vocal proponent of his beliefs and, and for doing it in the way he does, uh, I, I thought this was uh, this was uh, an excellent story. I see why you could get kettled with all this talk of beheading. But do, do you think this is this is part and parcel with something? I think you talked about with Jay Powell uh, in terms of Jay Powell being maybe more open to criticisms of quantitative easing. And do, do you see that trend, you know, throughout the world in terms of central banks that have pursued stimulative measures are now saying, well, you know, maybe it's not all roses. Well, look, no, I mean, yes and no. Uh, I think. The, the the difference between the Fed and the other major central banks is the Fed, there's been a change at the head of the uh, bank. And so, uh, you know, the Mark Carneys, the, the Haruhiko Kurodas of the world, the Mario Draghi's of the world are not about to start saying they've made mistakes. Um, these things tend to happen when there's a change of head and you can you can uh, implicitly blame it on the, on the previous regime. Um, Janet Yellen was never about to say, I've been foolish and I've been wrong, and Bernanke certainly wasn't, and Greenspan, now he's out of office, is, is saying the other two were wrong. I mean, give them enough time, they'll all turn on each other. But with Draghi set to end his tenure, maybe this is what happens with the, with the ECB. Maybe they then do have a pathway to start questioning some of the decisions that were made and making changes, but, but all that does is really make things much harder for for equity markets to go higher if, if we really are seeing a change and look people i have a great deal of respect for believe that this navel gazing coming out of the fed now is the real deal and they really uh, are seeing um the problems they've created uh perhaps we'll talk to our guest about that shortly but uh there's definitely been a change at the fed and maybe that changes but but i i, I think alex to your point they're going to be very slow to point the finger at themselves. That seems to be the way of it, unfortunately. Anyway, but that's how that's how long's taken care of. It's time to take a look at the shorts uh, again, Alex. Why, why don't you kick things off? What are you short? Very good. I'm short middle seats. I know it's a perennial short of yours. Ha. 
Yes, yes, I, 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 I've managed to avoid them for some time. Every now and again, though, I get stuck in one, and yeah, I, they're the bane of my existence. Yeah, so I know we've talked about it before. We're thinking about it this week because on the Restaurants Brand International Earnings Call, uh, this is the company that owns Burger King and also owns um, the fried chicken purveyor Popeye Louisiana Kitchen. Uh, their CEO said on their earnings call that they've been testing delivery, and they report, uh, I'm just going to read uh, from the transcript, Consumers have particularly enjoyed using the delivery channel to purchase Popeye's products for the dinner and for the late night day parts. So not only are people eating fried chicken late at night, but they're not even bothering to go to the fried chicken store late at night. They're just sitting there (laughs) waiting for it to come to them. Uh, Taco Bell had an advertising campaign, fourth meal, and this might be fourth meal, or maybe it's fifth meal. Maybe they had the Taco Bell, now they're having the Popeye's. And, And I guess I just... It's it's more bad news for people who are ending up on middle seats in U.S. domestic flights. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think Popeyes has made it um, out of the U.S. I, I don't recall seeing a Popeyes anywhere else in the world, but Burger King certainly mm-hmm. um, is uh, is very much a global brand. So, uh, yeah, look, I mean, this uh, this tendency towards uh, having your food delivered to you. I, I got to say, I'm not a fan of this stuff because by the time it gets you, it's always cold. It's never it's never fun. I'd much rather go get it myself, to be honest, than, than order this delivery stuff. But I seem to be conservatively in a minority uh, and probably more realistically in a, in a tiny minority. So, yeah, look, that's just going to make uh, – that's going to make me want to be even more short of uh, middle seats right along with you. Sure. Well, look, my short this week um, is uh, I am short of uh, planned obsolescence in um, appliances and uh, – gadgets and the like because uh you know there's been a lot of talk about this with this this problem with uh, apple making batteries slow down when when their hardware gets a, a little bit older and this idea of obsolescence in gadgets you know you, you pay for things these days that the fed measure hedonic adjustments that the price varying has come down but um you know over the life of these things these tvs and all the other stuff that they're telling us have become that much cheaper now over the life of them, which they seem to die very, very quickly, you end up spending way more than you would have done. And there was a case in point uh, in a story that I came across, which is actually um, from late last year. But there was a couple uh, in Exeter in in the far southwest of the UK who made the news because they were getting rid of some appliances that they bought uh, a few years ago. Now, the couple, Sidney Saunders and his wife Rachel, are in their 80s. Uh, and they are getting rid of a tumble dryer, a water boiler, a cooker, and a washing machine, all of which are in perfect working order, and all of which they bought in 1956, and they've been using them ever since. So that's, uh, you know, that's 60-odd years of use out of these things. Um, uh, It's astounding to me. They bought this washing machine made by service, uh, which I'm not even sure. I'm sure service will have been swallowed up by Hoover or Whirlpool or Hotpoint or somebody by now. It cost them £60 uh, way back in 1956, and they've used it for 60 years. It cost them a pound a year for this thing. Um, and uh, Mr. Saunders was quite the saying, all of the items work just fine, but the washing machine does have the slightest of leaks. <laughs> the, uh, the, the tumble dryer they bought 55 years ago, they bought a cooker for £19 in 1956, and the boiler cost them £15 in 1959. And uh, the beauty of it was they decided to get rid of these appliances because they were, quote, unquote, having a clear out. Um, But, yeah, when I read this story, it's amazing to me that this stuff that they bought 60 years ago is still in perfect working order. And Meanwhile, uh, my life is cluttered 
with with much cheaper supposedly uh, gadgets which break uh, within a couple of years at most of buying them and you end up buying a new set. So I am very, very short of planned obsolescence because the old thing, they don't make them like they used to, is not just me being a grumpy old man complaining about it. There is proof here, thanks to Sydney and Rachel Saunders in their 80s from Exeter, England. God bless them both. It's a shame the service brand is no more. This was actually a great ad for them. I, I, I would love to go no, and buy it. a service boiler if I knew what a boiler yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, there's, there's a fan, if you Google the story, you'll find it on the BBC, and the, the, head, the title is Exeter Couple Finally Ditch 1950s Appliances. There's a fantastic picture of Sydney and Rachel there who look exactly like you would expect an 83-year-old man and an 81-year-old woman from Exeter in the UK to look like. Um, but they're standing there proudly with these uh, appliances. Uh, they do look like something out of a you know, black and white TV show. But these things are still working. It's extraordinary. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I will happily add features to this very basic service washing machine. And maybe it doesn't last 60 years, but it only lasts 40 years. That'd still be a decent deal to me. But anyway, uh, I'm rambling now, but I am long, I'm <laughs> short planned obsolescence. Anyway, that's enough of that. Alex, we've got stuff to get to, um, and we need to bring in our guest, uh, who is a big friend of Real Vision, Julian Brigden, the founder of Macro Intelligence, two partners. Um, he is a super smart guy and, and somebody I always want to talk to when I'm trying to get uh, the temperature of the bond market. So we figured with everything that is going on in bonds, this would be a perfect time to bring Julian back to, um, to Adventures in Finance and talk to him about where he sees the bond market. So Julian, thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Grant. Pleasure. Now, the subject at hand is our old friend, the bond market, and um, and specifically, you know, as we see the, the the yield curve flattening, and everyone is eyeing this seemingly magical three percent. We've got two magical levels: two percent inflation and three percent yield on the ten year. Um, so, I just wanted to get your updated thoughts on on this level and on the bond market in general. So, as you know, we've. Um been pretty bearish on the bond market and be looking for yields to rise for for quite some time now. I mean, we think the low in fixed income yields was really put in in 2016. And then we played the run up, um, the first run up towards sort of 3%. We took a little bit of the cash off the table at that point. Um, and have re- recently re-recommended shorting, looking for another test of this three. Um, I think in, on the video that we did on Real Vision uh, that quoted me, I think one of the things, and I can't remember whether it was included or it was edited out, I said that personally I wasn't that fixated by three. Um, the one that I'm watching very, very closely is actually 30-year yields um, up around 320, 325, because up there, there's a multiple of technical signals, which if they get broken, um, are very potentially very, very powerful. Um, and I think we're in a window here where if we're going to have a go at this 3%, we're sort of entering that window, Grant. And I think primarily driven by an acceleration in the in the inflation story. Um, I think we've got a window of at least six months. Some of that beyond that will depend on how the underlying economy starts to react to some of these high rates because they definitively are consequences. I mean, we've dubbed it to our clients as a 
two steps forward, one step back kind of process. So you get a run up in yield. It has an economic impact both on the real economy and as we can see on the equity market. And then we kind of get a step back. But I believe, and this is where, you know, Raoul and I may disagree, I believe those step backs will never be as sufficient enough, should we say, egregious enough uh, in the fallout that we will ever get back to the sort of yields that we saw in 2016. Um, you know, so could you run up to three and a half and then come back to two and a half? Yeah, sure. Um, but then I think the next step is it's probably four rather than one and a half. So, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things that, that, that I'd love to dig into on that because, um, you know, but both cases for the, the, the case that you make for, for these, this continuing stair-stepping mm-hmm. higher makes perfect sense to me. You know, I listen to it and, and it is extremely reasonable, extremely credible. You know, playing devil's advocate for Raoul and not wanting to put words in his mouth, you know, I think the argument he makes that we could see one big panic into bonds if we get a major market dislocation, particularly with equities where they are, also makes very good sense to me for, for a short-term trade. I think long-term, I think you're right. I think this is the way we have to go. But I can certainly see uh, if we get a major stock market correction, how there could be a big panic into into bonds. And particularly this time, I think treasuries, because I suspect people won't necessarily want um, you know Greek sovereign debt and Cypriot sovereign debt and some of the other lesser credits this time around. It's going to be it's going to be okay. It's time to get into something that we have always known to be the safest asset, which has always been treasuries. Do, do you do you give that a degree of oh. plausibility, or do you think that we really have reached the nadir? No, of the I mean bond, I uh, I, uh, I, sorry, do, I definitively give it credibility. I mean I think I think that's you know if you're a bond bear as we structurally are. You know, we tactically get in and out of the trades, as I said. You know, we've been yeah. really short, started to build up the position around 230, um, then got out around 295, and now we've just got back into some of the shorts again. You know, tactically, it's very different from structurally. Um, but I think there is, and it, and it creates a big headwind for the bomb bear, right? Because if I could just say, well, look, this is where I think inflation's exactly. going. Yeah. And the equity market will just sort of sit here. Then fine, I would be so uberly bearish on fixed income. Then you know you wouldn't be able to con- control your sort of ardor. But I think you do have to balance that, like that, that tug that we've got. Because I think, and then this is one of the things that I've been very keen to stress. You know, for to the macro insider guys um, who who we have as subscribers is that we're in this very unusual situation. Grant, where we've central banks have inflated risk assets, um, and I like to say nailed them to the ceiling, at the same point that they've nailed yields and rates, and I draw a discrepancy between the two, one being set by central banks, yes. one being the bond market, um, to the floor. And the normalization of that Gordian knot, as I like to refer to it as, is going to create a lot of tension. So if it happens, if if rates rise too quickly or yields rise too quickly, then obviously equities will puke. Um, and in fact, I think it's entirely possible that in the next six months, we get a true market correction. Um, I think, you know, as I said, where I 
I don't, I don't think it happens right here, right now. And so I can see that push up. So maybe it's to, you know, three and a quarter, three and a half, who knows in 10 years. Um, and then we trigger the downturn because it is going to have definitive consequences. I mean, there's whole tracks of the equity market. You know, I was listening to CNBC today, you know, they're talking about Amazon and zero cost of capital, you know, a company that can do anything because it has a zero expected zero cost of capital return to its investors. Well, what if that zero cost of capital is no longer zero anymore, right? Because, you know, yields are sufficiently high or rates are sufficiently high that suddenly people demand returns. I mean, all of these things have knock-on consequences. So, do I have sympathy with what Raoul is saying? Absolutely. And, and, you know, and I think in many respects, um, he's going to be proved right. The question is, is just timing. I think, you know, without the push from yields, at this point, I don't see the equity crash. And I think that's an integral part to delivering that, that tactical pulse down in yields and bouncing bonds. Well, you know, the, the big problem with this trade, and if we think of short bonds as, you know, a long-term trade, which I, I have to believe it is now. I think, I think I, you know, I agree with you. I think we have turned the corner and we are now structurally headed lower in the bond market over time. But because of the dynamic we've set up and that we've just spoken about with the, with the valuations and equity markets being what they are, you, you're not going to be slightly <laughs> wrong. You know, if you can take this trade on and, and you're not going to get a mild step back. If, if things go pear-shaped, uh, you know, the bond market bid is going to be, I, I would imagine, precipitous. Well, I think it depends. Imagine a situation – look, I think it would rally, don't get me wrong. But imagine a situation where – which I think is entirely feasible, where over the next six months, inflation really shoots higher. I mean, we've got some work that suggests that you could be getting a headline PCE, and I was looking at it this morning, um, you know, well over three, okay? So that's basically doubling from here. Um, Now, I'm not, you know, saying that, but let's imagine a situation that happens, okay? And certainly what we're seeing in terms of what companies are doing for pricing is already suggesting that's essentially baked in the cake, Grant. So imagine that situation occurs, the bond market starts to sell off. Okay. We see, you know, three and a quarter, 320, you know, 340, something like that. And then the equity market gives up. Okay. What happens to bond yields if then the next print for PCE is even higher? Now, I wouldn't, you know, if the equity market's down 25%, then sure, you know, bond yields will fall. But how far will they fall? You know, one of, one of my core theses is that we've created this whole industry of modern portfolio theory, which is essentially the idea that you run long of everything and bonds always act as your hedge since 1998, right? It was, it was truly created and we've written and discussed this with, with clients over a long period of time since the since the Asian crisis in the LTCM in 98, where Greenspan came in and for the first time ever created essentially this put. And the put is nothing more than the ability to ease lower yields and lower rates in a risk-off environment. And But that's only possible, and this is why it's ironic, in a disinflationary world. And I'm not going to say deflationary world because it's a disinflationary world. Because prior to that, for 230 years, 
that relationship had never held, right? You'd never had a scenario where bond yields fell as, you know, equities um, went the same way, you know, bond, so, that, so you had the bond price and the equity price positively, uh, negatively correlated. Never, ever happened. Never, ever happened. So, because there's always before that, you're afraid of inflation. So, inflation would rise, bond yields would rise, and stocks would fall. So, they were never a hedge. And the, you know, it's just, it's, I, I think we've got ourselves in this real, as I said, Gordian knot, Grant, and how we break out of it is going to create some very volatile and choppy trading. It's just, I've struggled to see how we go back to the lows in in yields again. I just think those were extraordinary circumstances brought upon by inappropriately loose government policy, which created this tsunami of cash that flooded into our treasury market, most notably, um, and has utterly diluted prices. I mean, all my fundamental models tell me 10-year treasury yields should be above 4% now, but they're not there because of ECB and BOJ policy. So, Julian, I'd like to dig a little more into your inflation call. Um, I guess, how much could inflation rise? Will we see it fall into wages? And it's been something so awaited for so long to just, you know, how do we know that it is around the corner now, finally? Well, it's, look, I mean, we've been we've been sort of saying, look, we've been playing the higher inflation trade for a while now. And inflation, I think here's the thing, inflation... And your question, Alex, I think frames it quite interestingly, and I don't mean to be critical, but it's classic where you say, you know, people have been calling for the inflation call for so long and we haven't seen it. It's wrong. We actually have. You know, start of 2000, end of 2015, inflation in the US was zero CPI. It's now above two. So we clearly have had inflation. What we haven't had is offsetting price movement in the bond market to vindicate the inflation. Okay, and so I think there's a there's a real tendency in markets to confuse the two. Oh, I haven't seen a move up in bond yields, so there is no inflation. Well, that's not true. There are other factors that have held bond yields in check as inflation has risen. Okay, most notably ECB and BOJ QE when combined with NERP and the tsunami of cash flow that it's caused. Right. I mean, European investors, and this is the ECB who's come up with these numbers, have gone from buying 20% of all uh, US debt instruments bought by foreigners to over 50. Right, Because they have no yield at home. Right? So they've just piled into US treasuries. And it is utterly artificially held down our yields in the face of this rising inflation. And we've been saying that, look, inflation is rising. and what gives us comfort in to think that we're now in this window, as I said, is I think it's kind of like a six-month window, is that our models are starting to show material acceleration from here. Um, this is kind of the window we've been looking for. And exactly what happens after in sort of Q4 will depend on, as I said, some of the fallout of the if we get higher rates and what it does to the real economy. But every indicator we've got has been saying this is a period of intense acceleration. Um, Did you, Julian? I mean that 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 rings true to me, and I, and I see that everywhere I look, and particularly when you look at um, wage data, which is coming through consistently hot um, in many many places, and, and obviously 
that's the really crucial one. If we, if we do get significant and pernicious wage inflation, that's the, the, the sort of dog that does bark and people cannot possibly ignore. But yet it, it, it's amazing to me how remarkably sanguine markets have been with this, this stair step of rates higher, you know, as if it doesn't matter yet. And you know, is there a line out there where you think it does? Or is this really people just refusing to believe this is real because of exactly what you just pointed out in Alex's last question, this, this belief that we've been waiting for so long and it hasn't happened, so it won't happen. You know, where are we with this? Is, I, is there I don't a line in sand or is this just going to be a gradual realisation? A... So when it comes to the real economy, I think there are already signs that the increase in yields that we've seen off the lows of 2016, and we've seen quite a substantial increase, um, is already going to have some consequences in the real economy. Um, I'm a little worried about housing. Um, I know that there's a ton of demand out there, but affordability is just atrocious. And uh, you've combined, you know, the high cost of housing with an increase in mortgage rates, and it doesn't look potentially very good, you know, later in the year. And that's definitively a, a risk point. Um, there's clearly you know, impacts on the equity market, which we've already discussed um, via sort of cash flow and discounting, et cetera, et cetera, and, uh, and cost of capital. So I think the, there's, there are levels, I don't, but I don't know whether there's a line in the sand. I think the other part of your question, Grant, though, is that it goes back to what I was just talking to Alex about, and that is that the, I very much believe that markets trade definitionally price action. And so I think there is, there is a danger that all of a sudden people, we do get that emperor has no clothes moment because we've just been saying, well, there is no inflation. There is no inflation because I can't see it in the bond market. Well, that's not where you see the inflation typically, see it in the real economy. But what if you suddenly start to get the price action? And then I think, and I've talked about this in the past, there's, there's this whole industry that sort of then kicks in to support the price direction, right? People all of a sudden, Every single story on bloody Bloomberg, and I talk to a lot of journalists, you know, will be sa- will be calling me up and saying, oh, Julian, you've been talking about the inflation thing. Oh, look, I've just seen 10-year yields have gone up 10 basis points today. You know, what about the inflation story, right? And so you'll just be deluged with this whole bunch of stories that say, that are trying to retrofit a macro justification to a price action. So you're going to get, if you get that ball rolling, which it appears to be doing at the moment, you're going, it's going, it does to a certain extent become self-reinforcing. So I'm curious in this, as we untie this Gordian knot, it, in this situation where you see um, bond yields rise uh, in, in reflection of inflation and, and reflection of the other things you've been talking about, uh, equity market rollover, the Fed uh, perhaps choosing to not raise rates anymore or even cut rates, what would, what would be... The impact on yields basically could the could the Fed drive yields lower again to below three percent in that sort of scenario, um, or would inflation and and sort of structural factors continue to drive yields higher? So, so I, I look, I think you you lay out the likely scenario quite well, Alex, and it goes into this two steps forward, one step back, right? So you get the lurching yield, maybe a marginally hawkish Fed if we do get a big burst of. Uh, inflation, as I'm predicting, and then things go get very unpleasant, and then they correct again. But the point is, is yes, yields would fall, okay, 
But then we know what would happen with the Fed. They would rush in and try and catch the baby, right? And prevent too aggressive in a sell-off. And all that'll do, and they'll be much quicker to, to, to ease than they have been to tighten. Okay? And so you get this, they catch the fallout. Because they catch the fallout, the fallout is never as, as egregious as you would think it should be. Right. And so what do you do? You take a step back, but you don't take two steps back. So yields do drop. You know, depends where it starts from, right? From three and a half to two and a half or whatever. Right. But the point is, they don't go back to one six because and, and each time they move to catch it. And God forbid the, the government steps in and and because there's nothing more than than than, you know, politicians would love ahead of, you know, let's say the midterms that we get a strong correction in the equity market, you guarantee you that would be the signal to do the infrastructure spending plan that we can't afford, right? And that we don't need at this point in the cycle. But it, that's the point. It, it, you know, that's how cycles start, right? You don't just go from zero inflation to 8%. Right, you go from zero to two and a half, two and a half, because they hit it back to one seven five, you know, one seven five to three, three back to two and a quarter. You know, there is there's a natural cyclicality because of the response function of policymakers to to price action, be it macro price action in terms of inflation or bond price action. So, Julian, t- talking about that that Fed response, um, yeah, I've been interested to to read and look at Jay Powell, what he said before, and he certainly seems to me to be a different animal to Bernanke and Yellen um, and Greenspan for that. You know, he he spent a lot of time in the private sector. Um, he's been in private equity. He understands how bond markets work. He understands how financial markets work, and he has very clearly set himself up to try at. at at the very least, and change this narrative that the Fed has got the markets back. Um, obviously, when push comes to shove, despite all the talking he's been doing, it's going to be uh, you know millions of eyes on him to step in and do something. Do you think that he is a different animal, even marginally, or or do you think that the Fed put is still very much alive, very much kicking, and nobody really needs to worry about there being a different man in charge? At the no, Federal I think Reserve? he. I think he's. Uh... He's a very different beast. In fact, I think that the Federal Reserve, my understanding is the Federal Reserve is doing quite a lot of naval gazing um, and analysis of the sort of of the last few years. And in some respects, is coming to the conclusion that they've perhaps aggravated the social inequalities and and created this very dangerous dynamic. Uh, so I think viscerally they would like to change it. And I think certainly the hurdle to another round of QE grant would be enormous. Um, mm. And I think Jay Powell was on the record in one of the testimonies he gave for saying and emphasizing the tool of the Federal Reserve is is um, our Fed funds. So I think I, th- I think yeah. the the if you refer to the put as the as QE. Then I think we're miles away from that, um, and I think 
Dundee Jake Powell, that would be clear. But, but doesn't it have to be QE now? Well, maybe, uh, maybe percent, it does. You know, I mean, the, po- the, the point is, is I'm kind of a believer in when it comes to the equity market, the stock or the quantity of QE in the system sets the price of equities. And, right. and when it comes to bonds, it's the rate of change uh, that seems to be more influential. Um, so, um, but I think it, here's the problem. Even if they want to get away from this, he inherits a system which has been jacked up on crack cocaine, right? And 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 heroin. I mean, how getting, you know, at some point the market's going to go cold turkey and he's going to have to deal with that, you know, and, and does he give it some methadone in, in the form of, you know, rate cuts? I think that's entirely possible. And then do the do the fiscal authorities come in with yet more spending? I think that's entirely likely. So, well, pl- plenty would argue you, d- you just you just lock the patient in a room and let him sweat it out. But that you know that 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 doesn't really? in a, in a, seem in a to be an option. Case, that's because... not an option, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's not an option. Yeah, We've exactly. got no. We have no incl- <laughs> And and look, I think beyond that, Grant, beyond that, we need inflation. Societally, we need to eviscerate the value of the debt that we've accumulated. Defaults, realistically, for lots of of the actors in the economy are not a viable option. For all these poor kids who've got student loans, like they're talking about now tapping your retirement funds if you haven't paid back your student loans, right? Um, It isn't an option to walk away from the debt anymore. For government, essentially, it isn't an option to walk away from from debt anymore. The only option is to eviscerate the the real value of that debt. And so I think, you know, Governments are slow. Central banks have been fighting this fight on their own. And yet you can see now in the rhetoric of, you know, uh, Trump, in the rhetoric of Abe talking about, you know, basically shifting tax incentives to encourage firms to pay higher wages. And even in Theresa May's, you know, attack on the global elite, that there is, and this is all from the right wing, that there is this acknowledgement that they have to do something to boost wages for the average man. And that means really inflation, uh, because we're talking about nominal wage growth. And I, I just think that's absolutely necessary. So I think that's another reason why I think central banks, you know, even if they do tighten, continue to sort of err on letting it run hot, Grant, which is what I call Right, so you don't, so you do this nominal GDP targeting or whatever the hell you want to talk about, right? Which is all it is is a mixture of, you know, X amount of real growth plus inflation. But at the end of the day, you'll, if it's all inflation, well, so be it, right? You just got to get rid of the value of that debt, and so that's why I think they'll catch it quickly if we get up with a rollover, and all it'll do is just keeps baking inflation in in a gradually, you know. One step up, little step back, one step up, little step back. So where I'd like to close is something that, that we've been sort of talking around, but um, we would like you to address directly how strong you think the underlying economy is. Because, of course, the, the optimists would say that the increases we've seen in CPI and PC are, and bond yields, for that matter, are due to a strengthening economy, an economy that's finally getting on its feet, et cetera. Um, so I, I guess what, what's your sense of, of – the underlying economy strength, both in the U.S. and around the world, right now. Um, I, I'm certainly not in the um, camp that believes that uh, the global economy at this point is faltering. 
Um, I know that some people have jumped on, you know, the slowdown in the European um, surprise index, the city surprise index in Europe, and just sort of said, "Ah, I told you so. We're all screwed, right? To use that great line that all the Brits will recognise from Zulu, you're all going to die, right? And and I just, I, I don't see that um, in any of the models. I see that maybe we, we picked, we hit peak momentum um in the fourth quarter in certain sectors most exports and some of that was an inventory rebuild cycle um but going forward it still looks solid so even if european export growth you know was growing at 10 percent in q4 and now maybe the rest of this year only grows at five it's still growing at five in an economy where trend growth is real trend growth is 0.5 and whether you're growing at two and a half or two really doesn't make that much of a difference. You're still closing the output gap bloody quickly. So, and that's what creates the inflation. So I don't see that particular slowdown. In the US, I just think we've got an economy which is ticking over at, you know, two and three quarters, maybe, maybe. Um, We're going to get a big boost of spending. I mean, government spending is a shed load of cash, that has to get spent, and it has to get spent by the 31st of September. Most people don't realise that. The whole of that budget for this year has to get spent in the next six months. And that's going to keep things quite frothy and, and quite strong. Um, and uh, so I'm not, in the, I'm not in the slowdown camp. But there are problem areas. I mean, there are areas of the economy that are super sensitive to rates, like housing. Right, there's going. You can you can see signs of housing already having slowed down a little bit. Right, if you look at um, you know new home sales, they were running 15, 20 percent per annum back in middle of 2016, and now running at five to eight. I mean, slow down, right? Why? Because houses have got expensive and rates have risen. So there's so there's definitely some risks there. I can see some risks you know, potentially around some of the PMI data in the US a little bit, but it's not, it it doesn't look like enough to signal, it's not, it's not in no way, shape or form recessionary, right? Do you peak out some of the momentum? So you go from growing in Europe, as I said, from two and a half, you know, which I think the first quarter will be two and a half, two and three quarters to maybe two and a quarter, maybe, but that is not the end of the world. I mean, not at all. Julian, you know, this is something that uh, we are going to spend a lot of time talking about in the coming couple of years, I suspect. And uh, look, I, I have to say, I, I think you're, I think you're dead on. Um, I totally get where Raoul's coming from, and I think um, in the short term, at some point here, he's going to be yeah. extremely right. But uh, I, I think the data you know, tells me that we're, we're heading your way, and I, and I say, I just, I just worry. That there is a moment coming when the Fed are going to be forced to 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 disappoint markets, and while it may be a brief disappointment because they'll be forced to step in, I think when you know when when the when the kids finally get the ice cream taken away, the tantrum is normally quite astonishing to watch. So, I guess we'll have to sit back and do that. Listen, in the meantime, um, for those who don't know you from your real vision work, please let people know where they can follow you, where they can find out more about what you do, and and, and read some more of your stuff because it is absolutely fascinating. So look, we've, uh, you can you can look us up on our website, mi2partners.com. Um, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, which I think is Julian at mi2partners. Um, and um, we also have a uh, 
the Macro Insider product, which uh, you can find, uh, which we put out with Raoul, which is aimed at some of the uh, the retail investor, so active retail investors. And um, we also put out a free um, publication called Thoughts and Divide, which uh, anyone can subscribe to and uh, just contact us at uh, support at macro at mi2partners.com. Fantastic. Uh, Julian, it's always a pleasure, and uh, hopefully we get to sit and chat in person again soon. Cheers, Grant. All the best, mate. Yeah, so that was great. Julian's obviously a very uh, deep thinker about the markets. I'm I'm curious what you think of his overall view of the economy um, that he closed with and and how it relates to the bond market here. It's interesting that you might see a a reasonably strong economy and yet an equity market that could roll over just simply because of inflation and and where bonds are going. The fact that the equity market could roll over, given um, the backdrop, is no surprise at all to me. And I think it, so far the equity market has behaved independently of the economy. It's certainly far stronger than the economy has been. So it would be no surprise to me to see uh, you know, what, what these days uh, qualifies as a fairly strong economy, which is unlike any period in the last 50 years. So I, I don't. I think the two have disconnected. I don't think the stock market is reflective of the strength of the economy and hasn't been for a number of years now. Um, and so I, that wouldn't surprise me if that continued. Um, and, and we do see weakness. I mean, you know, both sides of this argument are, are very, very credible. And I'm, I'm extremely torn. I, I think both sides will be right. I think Raoul will be right for a period of time. Uh, I think in the long term, Julian's right. Um, but uh, the timing of trying to of, of trying to navigate your way through both of these um, directional changes in the bond market is going to be fraught with peril. And uh, anyone out there who's looking to try and tiptoe their way through it, be very, very careful. All right, well, that brings us to the end of another Adventures in Finance. Uh, before we go, uh, the legal disclaimer, which you're with, with which you're all now supremely familiar, anything you heard on this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So please do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, place your stops, people, and always trade responsibly. We'll be back next week with an announcement of our own after the Real Vision announcement this week. Uh, But in the meantime, if you've got an interesting question about this week's show, then we'd love to hear from you. So please send us an email or leave us a voice note at podcast at realvision.com. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe on iTunes and consider leaving a review. Don't just consider it. Leave a review. It'll (laughs) take you a few seconds and you you can change lives by doing that. Change lives. Mm. If you want to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, then follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. We're also hanging around Facebook and LinkedIn. Just search for Real Vision. You, listen, you might be hanging around Facebook. I don't hang around Facebook. <laughs> There's no hanging around to be done on Facebook. There, there are enough shady connotations at the moment with that story. You don't want to be telling people you're hanging around there. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can at TTMYGH. If you want to follow me, uh, that's at Aces Rose. And by the way, just uh, want to feel like we should mention, Grant, again, that if you want a free trial for the new Real Vision product just head over to realvision.com and and check that out indeed give it a try uh producer james will be back with us next week but in the meantime uh, our thanks to producer bradley bradley thanks for all your hard work on this episode we really appreciate it oh thanks for having me it has been our pleasure and and i have never meant that more literally than i do right now (laughs) that's it from us we will see you all back here next week thank you so much for listening goodbye
you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.